Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 47. Today, we have a, another really super special guest. You might know her from the Bite Shot. Um, but today with us is food photographer, YouTuber, educator, author, entrepreneur, and former podcast host, Joni Simon. We have done our due diligence, as you can tell. Absolutely. <laughs> Very, bravo to you. <laughs> Joni, how are you? I'm fabulous. And you? Uh, yeah, we're good. It's not as early here as it is for you because you're in Arizona. Yep. Mountain Standard Time Zone right now. Enjoying a nice cup of coffee to get the day started. Uh, but I'm generally an early bird. So this is this definitely suits me to be starting right now. <laughs> Perfect. Right. So, Joni, I'm, I'm super happy to have you on the podcast because I've actually been following, I've generally been following your channel for at least three years, I think. Oh my gosh, no way. Yeah. So, because um, one of the things I love doing, and I'm not much of a cook, you know, or chef, I have to say, um, but one of the things I love doing is I love photographing um, flat lays. Yeah. And of course, a lot of flat lays are food related when, you know, when you look around on Instagram and, and so mm -hmm. on. And so, I've taken a lot of inspiration from uh, from your videos in terms of lighting and you know and and uh, composition and and arranging things and colors and all of that kind of stuff. So I have learned a lot because I'm sort of you know I'm really a portrait photographer. So okay. I'm you know so I'm like I'm very comfortable photographing people, but but flat lays is the other thing that I love doing. That's awesome! Oh my gosh, I'm so flattered. Thank you. <laughs> So how did you first get started in in food photography? It's a, it's a very specialist uh, kind of area. Yeah, I mean, you know, I always think of, I, I feel like food photography is this strange little niche in the photography world. And they're like, what are they doing over there? This is a little goofy bunch. But um, it all started, I mean, my background, I've, I've loved food ever since I was a kid. I didn't necessarily grow up in a foodie household, but I grew up at a time when, you know, the local um, television stations were doing a lot of cooking demos and the Food Network was really starting to gain notoriety. And I just, I thought food was so interesting. And uh, so started cooking when I was young. And so food's always just been really important to um, in culinary and dining out. And so I also then studied art history in my undergrad and really enjoyed my studio art classes. And so I've always had a passion for visual medium. And then eventually, as the internet and the blogging world really started to kind of come into its own, and we started to see food blogs really start to explode, uh, I was living in New York and wanted to share the food I was experiencing and the things that I was eating with my family back home in Arizona. So I just started a blog and started taking pictures, had a little point and shoot camera. And, uh, you know, one thing leads to another. And I'm like, well, I like this blogging thing, but I really like this whole taking pictures thing. Thing, specifically taking pictures of food because to me that was the only thing worth documenting you know was what I was eating and the food that I was interested in and so then fast forward to around 2000 well 2014 I had a podcast interviewing local restaurants and chefs and as a part of that whenever I would feature somebody I'd say can I come into your restaurant and shoot one of your signature dishes so that I can pair that up with uh, you know the blog post and then also at the time you know Instagram was starting 
starting to really uh, gain traction. And so, you know, can I post it on Instagram? And so I can't remember what episode it was, but it was about a year and a half or two years into the podcasting journey and went into a restaurant, shot the dishes, shared it. And they said, hey, can you come back in and, you know, can we hire you to photograph our menu? Because, you know, clearly you're a food photographer. And I'm like, "Uh, what? (laughs) Okay. You know, you do that thing where you're like, yeah, I know what I'm doing, but you're like thinking to yourself, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, But it ended up going in, shooting their whole menu. And I remember that shoot, I was shooting on a little uh, Sony a6000 and had the kit lens and didn't know what I was doing, but knew enough to be dangerous and to get some good shots, you know, and I look back at those old shots and I say, Hey, you know, I had, I had the eye, I knew enough to get myself started. Uh, and they were super happy with the images. And then that sort of that bug bit me that then it just kind of went all downhill from there <laughs> at that point. Then I started seeing the opportunity to start working with other local restaurants and did a lot of networking and connecting with uh, PR and marketing folks in the food space. But then at a certain point had kids and didn't necessarily want to be in the restaurants as much anymore. So saw the opportunity to then branch in working directly with uh, food brands and working with companies to create online digital content. And so both video and stills. Uh, and then eventually I had local food photographer or food bloggers asking me, you know, can you help me uh, take better pictures of my food? I said, well, let's do some workshops. And I found that I was kind of answering the same questions over and over again. And I'm like, I just don't want to talk about Aperture anymore. Like, I just need you to know what Aperture is. And then we can go do other fun things. So that's when I created my YouTube channel uh, and started sharing out videos as an effort to help the people I knew so that then when I got into a workshop, I didn't have to explain the basics to them. Um, But lo and behold, there was an audience waiting on YouTube who was hungry for that information. And so that's now uh, where my primary focus is. It seems like it seems to be like you really have this, um, this sort of perfect trinity of skills, um, Mm -hmm. you know, where I know you've got sort of a sales background, and I know you also Mm -hmm. used to work in education as well. Um, And then you combine that with your creative skills. um, It's just, it just makes the perfect package, it seems to me. Yeah, it's so funny because, you know, you you look at your kind of life's journey and I mean, I'm still young, so who knows where all of this goes and ends up and where the path leads. But, you know, I remember thinking, you know, in my mid 20s, I or well, is it, yeah, my late 20s, early 30s, I, you know, had spent good number of years in education and was kind of burned out on that and just didn't see a future for me personally in that. And so then I ended up in sales and working in restaurant point of sales. And I I realized, okay, I'm good at this too. I can do this sales thing, but man, this is a swift departure from what I've been doing. Like I've invested all this time and education in learning how to teach. And now here I am doing sales. And that seems kind of totally random and different. Uh, And then, you know, kind of ended up getting burned out on that and left that and then ended up in kind of this creative career. And of course, that love of food always being in the background. And yeah, so I, I remember thinking at a certain point before I'd found food photography, thinking like, what am I supposed to do with myself? Like, I've got all these super random skills. How will these things like, did I waste my time? Was that for nothing? But now I look back and I think, gosh, darn, every single one of those experiences, they all work together to create this very unique package that I think I'm so blessed to have been born into an age when the internet is here and that online education is so relevant uh, that, you know, had I been born 20 years ago, maybe I wouldn't be doing the same exact thing or using 
these skills in the same way. So I'm super grateful for it. When you were talking about, you know, you were taking a photo and said, oh, can you come back and photograph the, yeah. you know, some more of our menu? It's it's really important because people hear these things that, you know, they, 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 they see people like yourself and they feel, you know, as, you know, amazing photographer and they think that you've just forever been that way. They, they don't always necessarily believe that there was a time where you were just starting out as well. And yeah. that actually, you know, to a certain extent, you, you know, you, you know, for that one of a better phrase, you fake it before you make it. And, you know, you said, no, I've got confidence in myself. I can take a good picture. I'm going to take that job and I'll learn as I go more, more mm-hmm. as we go. And people forget that. And I think it's really, really important that you had the confidence in yourself to just go, yeah, 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 I'll see you. I'll see you next week. Because those are the magical moments to me. Like I think back over some of those critical growth moments from a professional standpoint that I always grew the most when I took a job that like in the back of my mind, I knew I could do it, but I was also kind of terrified because I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Right. Because we'll talk ourselves out of all sorts of stuff. You know, we'll have 99 reasons to say no. <laughs> um, but at the back, in the, if you can always just kind of go, no, I, I can do this. And because all also too, it's just food photography, right? Like what's the worst thing that's going to happen? It's not like we're shooting somebody's wedding and we can't redo something. Like we can remake a cake or we can refund money. Like it's not the end of the world. So I feel like when I think back to like my first time I was shooting for Nor Bullion, like the, the bullion cubes. And I thought, oh man, this is like kind of the first big brand that I was shooting for. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. And I mean, I was sweating bullets in a nervous wreck, but after that and seeing that the client was happy and that I was able to do it, that, that just like fuels that energy so much more to go try bigger and more scary things over time. And you find yourself, if you do enough of that over an amount of time, you'll suddenly go, wow, okay, how did I get here? This is incredible. It's funny. You mentioned something, you know, about, yeah, the more you do something right is um, one of the things that I want to start doing over the what's left of our lockdown over, uh, out here is to look at doing some street portraits of of people from a safe distance and 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 whatnot. Obviously, but I'm generally quite an introverted person. I'm not necessarily the most outgoing person, but I am in certain circumstances. And that's one of those speaking to strangers where you don't, but I was was just doing some research on it and, you know, what's the best way to go about, you know, still little tips and tricks, techniques, and particularly with dealing with the public like that. And the the number one uh, thing they say is go and find 10 people who reject you and say, no, I don't want you to do it. Just find 10. It's going to take you a long time to find 10, first of all. But when you do, you're hardened to it. It doesn't matter. It's nothing personal. Yeah. Yeah? So it's the more you do it, the, the, all those scary situations, the easier, the far easier it becomes, right? Absolutely. So you get, are you, have you done that yet? No, no, this is, this is a, a yesterday, literally a yesterday thought, thought process okay. of mine. This is, this is my, <laughs> this is my project starting later this week. <laughs> so now you're held accountable. We're watching. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I tell you, my, my nine-year-old daughter can give you some tips because she, uh, she got into photography um, about a year ago and she's decided that she wants to photograph dogs. She's a dographer, a dog, a photographer or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> Um, and we went, we have some lakes, um, locally here and, you know, we went down to the lakes and, um, and she said, you know, we, we were talking and I was just like, okay, so what, you know, what kind of thing would you like to, to photograph? She goes like, well, I don't like photographing people. I'm like, okay. All right, then. Uh, what, what would you like to photograph? She goes like, I like photographing dogs. 
I'm just going to go and photograph that dog over there. And I'm like, okay, well, you're going to have to speak to the owner though. Or you can't just like walk up and, you know, take a picture of a, of, of some random dog. And without thinking, she would just walk up to any random person and very politely say, excuse me, may I please take a photograph of your dog? And of course, if you know any dog owners, you know, if any like nine-year-old <laughs> blonde girl asked them whether they could take a picture of the dog, they're just going to go, yeah, absolutely. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's, it's just great. You know, she has no, like she, it doesn't enter into her thought process that, that, you know, she might be, I don't know, nervous about approaching somebody. She just goes up to somebody and says like, you know, she's very polite and uh, she comes home with lots of dog pictures, which is great. That's such a great point though. Like, you know, you think back and, and I haven't thought of this in a while and I'm glad you've kind of like jogged this memory of things that I remember learning, you know, in art classes in college is the idea that like so much of our creativity is kind of buried under these levels of kind of these layers that we build over time as we become adults. And that if we can kind of peel back and get back to that place of, you know, unashamed creativity that we had when we were a kid, you know, you ask a kid to show you what they just made and they're like super excited. But for some reason, when you become self-conscious, when we become adults and so, you know, how, how we kind of peel back those layers and become cognizant of that and get inspired by what we see children do, I think it's very powerful. What that really inspired me to as well um, is is that thing generally, you know, when you run a business and you need to put yourself out there and you need to approach potential clients. And it's, of course, a, a lot of, a lot of, especially new photographers, I don't know if that's necessarily something that's only relevant to creative people. I think it's probably just mostly people who feel kind of nervous about, you know, taking the first step, picking up the phone, sending that email, you know, making that first contact. And it's that was, you know, I was watching my daughter. And I'm thinking like, she has no hangups about this whatsoever. No. Why am I sitting at home thinking, you know, shall I call that company to see what they should want headshots? Or, you know, forget it. I just basically sent the email. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, sometimes we can learn a lot just by looking at kids and how like, um, what's the word? Uninhibited they are about certain mm -hmm. things, you know? Well, I hope she, uh, Hope she finds a great future in dogography. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's yeah. I mean, she's uh, she's you know, yeah. That's what she's into. So we'll <laughs> see. Watch this space. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Um, so, Joni, you've you've obviously eventually you transitioned onto YouTube when you mm -hmm. started your YouTube channel, The Bite Shot, which is all about food photography on a creative level on one hand, but also on sort of a, on a business level on the other hand. Mm -hmm. Did you already have a lot of photography experience when you when you first started that channel? Or was that sort of a another kind of, you know, well, I'm just going to get started. I'm going to learn how to do it as I go along type of a thing. I mean, I feel like when I started the channel, I felt like I knew a lot. But now looking back, there was a lot I didn't know. <laughs> and I have learned so much um, over the course of the last, what, three, we're going on four years now coming up. And, um, you know, I feel like one of the things that's very powerful sometimes to propel us forward is that sort of naive perspective of, uh, especially when we're beginning thinking we know more than we do. Um, but I think, you know, having that openness to learn was important because, yeah, definitely, you know, the first couple videos, you know, I, I knew again, you know, kind of the basics, the exposure triangle, how to diffuse light and some of those basic principles. But what was so magical was and so powerful and I think has helped me to grow so significantly in my skills in such a relatively short amount of time is that 
you know, the internet shows up, people start asking questions. And, you know, my favorite one is like somebody, this was a lot, I don't remember exactly where this was in terms of the timeline, but somebody's, you know, well, what do you think about extension tubes? I'm like, what the heck is an extension tube? I don't know what that is. (laughs) Get on Google, go research it. Oh, okay. Let's go buy some extension tubes. Let's play with it. And then voila, a couple of weeks later, we got a video, you know, and I feel like part of Uh, sort of that secret sauce, especially when this channel was sort of beginning, because it is definitely geared towards the beginner audience, you know, the folks who are getting started, who, um, you know, just don't even know where to start. Because, you know, there's plenty of experienced photographers who show up on the channel and go, well, you know, you can do blah, 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 different. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's great for that beginner. And I think that having that sort of just being just slightly ahead of the audience, kind of where I was, was so powerful because I still understood the struggles and still remembered the things that were difficult or hard or hard to understand and be able to break it down in a way that was very relatable. Um, You know, I have to continually, the further I get along my journey, have to continue to take myself back to that mental space and that place of remembering, okay, yeah, this is not something that everybody just knows. You know, you don't just walk out of the womb and understand what certain things mean. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's been incredibly fun and it's so crazy. Again, you know, my husband too just cracks up. He's like, I don't know when this photography thing ended up in our lives, but clearly it's taken over and you know, why, why you have all this gear and all these things, but you know, that's, that's what happens, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's, I tell you what, these are the exact words that my wife uses pretty much every day. It's like, yeah. how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. How did we get here? You know, yeah. cause we say too, you know, we think back, we've been together 20 years now and he says, you know, had you told me 20 years ago that you'd end up being a photographer, I would not, I would not have seen that coming, but it makes sense. Again, the pairing of all these different interests and that, that I love art, but I have no patience for painting. So, you know, photography makes sense. (laughs) But if somebody said to you like 20 years ago, you know, this, this was, this is what you're going to be doing, like on a digital platform, that's like somewhere in the cloud, like some weird thing that everybody was like, what? I know. Right. I mean, that any of this exists and this is all still so new. That's why I'm so excited, too, because I feel like, I mean, the the Internet and digital media, it's still the Wild West. It's so in its infancy. And so to see where this is all going to be in 5, 10, 20 years, what that's going to look like, I'm just I, I can't wait. Well, see, the thing, I mean, I think, you know, I speak for Nick as well when I say that, you know, I mean, the reason why we started this podcast, as all of our tens of listeners will know, um, is, you know, we started this podcast uh, right at the beginning of the first lockdown, and it's a direct result of the pandemic, because we, you know, like I always say, we we found ourselves with um, all of our contracts cancelled and not much work, and, you know, and we had to do something creative to keep things going, and so we decided, seeing that we talk about photography all the time. Anyway, we might as well mm-hmm. record it. And there must be some other nerd out there who might, you know, might like to listen to it. Who knows? Um, Absolutely. But, you know, the fascinating thing for us really um, is is that, you know, here we are uh, 47 weeks later. Mm-hmm. We're still doing it. And in the process, not only, because you know, one of the things we, we thought in the very beginning was like, okay, so if we do this every week, like, what are we going to talk about? Like, <laughs> and, like every week, I mean, if we do this like for an hour, it's, it's going to be pretty re- repetitive. But, but I think, you know, we've, 
over the last 47 years, which is nearly a year, we've, been, you know, we've managed to speak to so many really interesting people yeah. uh, from all different walks of photography. And, you know, and we've learned something every week. Like, you know, yeah. one week we get a chance to speak to, a, you know, a wildlife photographer. And then we speak to you, you know, food photography. And then there's a, like a headshot photographer. And it's like every time you speak to somebody, you go like, ah, I didn't know this, you know? Wicked. Mm -hmm. And then it, tidbit. yeah, and then it just comes, it becomes part of the, yeah, I did a shoot the other day, actually, um, which was kind of like a flat lay shoot. And, um, and I was like, yeah, you know, I was battling with lighting and going through the usual uh, thought process. I think, you know, it's like, oh, it should be window light. Or, you know, should I use the north window for this? Is it overcast enough? You know, <laughs> or should I go for, should I get the, like, you know, you know, six, seven foot softbox out or whatever. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and although it wasn't really a food flat lay, I kind of thought, right, I'm going to check out Joni's channel just to see how she does that. And then, you know, that, that, um, that helped me to, uh, to, to create this image in the end. Um, awesome. How'd it turn out? Well, all will be revealed next week. Ooh, very exciting. It's <laughs> quite a teaser. Yes. It's also a teaser for Nick, who hasn't actually finished his thing yet. <laughs> But we, you know, we have, uh, we get challenged uh, by our guests uh, occasionally. Sometimes we challenge our guests, sometimes we get challenged. So we, um, a few weeks ago, we, um, one of our guests, Donna, did it, um, challenged us to a five room challenge, which is, which is hilarious fun. Basically, you pick an object from five rooms in your house. So one object from the bedroom, from the living room, you know, the bathroom, whatever, the hallway, whatever. And then you mm -hmm. create a photograph out of these five objects huh yeah and uh, that is an interesting challenge yeah it's uh it how did it go for you nick um harder than i thought it was going to be i have to say i ended yeah. up doing something which is uh different i'm just gonna leave it there i i <laughs> it's different <laughs> it's, it's definitely not what you would have expected me to have done right. And it's definitely different from what I understand about yeah. your photo, which is great. It's, which it's is what a, I love about these. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. I mean, um, uh, the thing about creating this, and this, uh, you know, this this is uh, this totally applies to full photography, I guess, um, is that when you have these different things, and you have your your centerpiece, the, you know, the whatever it is that's that is the main um, focus of your of your photograph, a cupcake or whatever it may be, mm -hmm. the main dish. And then you need to accessorize it almost with all these other things. It's that I find that really challenging yeah. to bring all of these other elements into that. Did mm -hmm. that take you a long time to uh, to to work out how to do that, or, or is that something that came very naturally to you? Oh no, that's definitely a challenging part of you know the food photography uh, experience. And I, th it's certainly one of the things that I get a lot of questions about. And one of the most in demand topics is the, the prop styling yes. part of the equation, because it really does, um, it adds to both the aesthetic of the image, how it complements and works with the food. It also informs, you know, camera angles. It informs so many of the different, you know, technical decisions. But then too, just finding the the props that really speak to the style you're looking to create or the mood, you know. And so this is why too, you know, if you get into food photography and you start doing this um, in any sort of serious fashion, you find yourself ending up with all of these props 
drops and, you know, it, it, beca- it becomes a problem, <laughs> but, <laughs> a good problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is definitely, it's a challenging part of the process. And, it, and I think that it develops over time and your eye for uh, what you know is going to work and being able to kind of think through those things in your mind because you've, you've seen enough and you become exposed to a lot of it. I think one of the things that really helps me and, and helps me too, to really cultivate you know, an idea around what props I liked. I mean, certainly the internet is great and, you know, there's so much out there as far as seeing what other people are doing and um, Instagram accounts, things like that. But things can start to get a little monotonous in that realm. And so I find, you know, lots of great cookbooks can be helpful because you're going to definitely have like the editorial team behind that. And you're going to have like their professional prop stylists. There are people that specialize just in the props. And so, um, you know, looking at images that were created with that kind of expertise and, you know, advertising, magazines, things like that. And so you can really gain some interesting perspectives. But I feel like, you know, one of the things that really just unlocked a lot for me in terms of the character of images, a lot of times is very dependent both on the the backdrop that you're selecting, um, as well as the props. And the first couple of times that I spent some, I mean, they're not cheap, but, you know, being able to find some great ceramicists and potters and um, people who are making handmade plates and bowls and dishes, and you get those pieces that have like real character in them um, and texture and interest that suddenly you go, oh, wow, that like this is just transformed the whole scene in comparison to something that's, um, I mean, I have plenty of stuff that's, you know, from the mass produced stores and that's great too. But just having a couple of those little kind of character pieces can really add a lot to the image. Every time you go to like, let's say a flea market or like a car boot sale Mm. or something like that, do you find yourself just... Look at things going, ah, that would make a good problem. I think I'm going to pick that up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Your, the eyes are always open, right? Mm. Always paying attention. Um, you know, in terms of, I've definitely gotten some great things at the local flea markets and antique stores, but mm. I feel like there's also, you know, I do have this very burning desire at some point to end up in the UK and in Europe because I feel like I watch food photographers and prop stylists um, from your part of the world and they go in and they find these like gorgeous things. And I'm like, we don't have that here. Like there's just not <laughs> enough history in yeah. Phoenix, Arizona to support that those kind of props. And so yeah. um, I always lament thinking, oh, if I just had those kind of, you know, so I'm really good at navigating Etsy and eBay. So uh, for the folks, yeah. and I buy a lot of stuff from overseas that uh, that I purchase and pay God awful shipping for. But, you know, you, you got to do what you got to do. There's other advantages um, to living here. So, but I do have uh, British Airways points saved up. So once the pandemic is over, I will be making my way to the UK so that I can go raid some serious antique ah, shops. Fantastic. <laughs> well, we're, we're just outside London. So you know where we are. Yeah, yeah, um, we'll, we'll show you around. <laughs> Fabulous. I love it. <laughs> I, I've got a little bit of a thing for plates, right? I love a great yeah. plate and something that looks fantastic <laughs> or different, you know? And um, I know you very often you, for, for many years you pretty much only used round plates is that right and but you've, mm-hmm. you've kind of over recent months moved into using more sort of square and rectangular style plates what mm-hmm. just have it what prompted you to kind of make that it sounds like a s- small thing but I, f- I suspect actually it's a bigger thing for you than than perhaps people give it credit for what kind of made that transition yeah. why, do, why do you start introducing that well I did a cookbook shoot 
where it was very explicit from the art director that we should not have, there would be no square plates, no rectangle. It was only round plates. Like this was like, there were five cardinal sins on the, you know, mood board. Like do not incorporate slate, do not incorporate square plates. Like <laughs> it's very specific, which is great. I love a very specific art director. That is incredibly helpful. But I felt like, you know, anytime that you're limited and you're like, oh, I'm going to go branch out and do something wild, right? Because the, the little rebel inside of you is like, oh, no, no, no. Okay, now we need to go do what we want to do. Um, but I think too, just from a trend perspective, uh, and, and two, I think... I mean, certainly square plates, a lot of times, especially kind of like those more like what you kind of see in restaurants and kind of harken back to food photography of like the 1990s and and kind of before that, you know, rounder edges are a bit more organic. And so just maybe a kind of that softer feel. But um, but I feel like, you know, the trends are always changing and morphing, right? So we're maybe seeing a bit more in terms of angular um, and, and those kind of shapes going on. But I think too, you know, shooting anything that is square or rectangle, especially long rectangles, it can pose a lot of challenges just in terms of how to approach that dish. Um, Certainly the overhead perspective, I think, makes it easier. So that's why, you know, you can kind of frame that up a little easier. But if you're going to shoot, you know, something that's a long rectangle from, you know, that kind of three quarter, that, you know, 45 degree angle, it's going to be a little harder to really get a sense of balance. And, you know, am I just at the right angle? Like there's a bit more nuance there um, and a little less forgiveness just in terms of the geometry of the situation. So uh, I think it is a unique challenge in that regard, uh, but it's but it's a lot of fun. So yeah, I kind of have been keeping my eyes open for, for more square and rectangular props. I see my, my feelings about uh, rectangular square plates is I always, always think like who who eats from like square plates at home? Like if you have kids and you go like, yo, Stevie, load the dishwasher, like rectangular plates are not good. That's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not gonna. That's not gonna end well at all. Yeah. So, um, so, so you started. If we just roll back a little bit, because uh, you said in the beginning you started originally in food blogging, mm -hmm. and then, uh, and then you said you went, you went on to, uh, to to running a podcast at the time, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and then you sort of moved on to YouTube as a platform. Um, is it? Do Do you think that? There may be um, other platforms that, that you may get interested in. You know, I, I feel like it's hard to say. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that's been helpful to me in building the Bite Shot and the YouTube and Instagram audience is that I was just very um, kind of narrow in terms of not trying to be all the things on all the platforms because, you know, people go, Oh, you should really start to really focus on Pinterest and get more Pinterest content out there. And that'll really, you know, help fuel everything. And I'm like, I'm sure it would, but I just, I only have so many hours in the day and I want to put my primary energy towards the platforms where I get the most energy and the most excitement over. Um, I did think about, because, you know, I podcasted for a better part of two years and then transitioned into my first YouTube channel before the Bite Shop, which was more just creating cooking videos, um, which kind of what 
in one of the things that inspired that change from podcasting to video is realizing I do have the ability to talk in front of a camera, which not everybody has and is sort of a barrier to entry in the YouTube and the video content creation space. And so understanding that and thinking, if if I can do this and not everybody can, that this is an opportunity to do that. Now, that first channel didn't really go anywhere. But again, I chalk that up to a really great learning experience of learning how to do video, learning how to film myself and all these different things. And, and two, what was interesting is, yeah, I mean, I forget exactly how many videos. It was 200 some odd videos on that channel that I produced. And one of the videos was a video about how to do food photography. But I remember thinking at the time, like, wouldn't that be interesting if there was a food photography YouTube channel? I thought, nah, nah, I'd, I'd never have enough to talk about. I'd make a couple videos and that'd be it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, lo and behold, here we are. And I'm like, oh, I could, there's plenty more videos still to be made now, uh, you know, almost four years in. So, um, so yeah, it was definitely kind of that moment though of realizing, okay, if there's something that I can uniquely do that not everybody can do, I should leverage that. And I don't entirely know how that inspiration came to me or where that came from, but I'm certainly glad it did. <laughs> yeah, I just, that must have been a really steep learning curve because obviously, um, you know, creating a YouTube channel and, and you know making videos and filming yourself mm-hmm. and then editing it. And, you know, apart from that, of course, because it's about food photography. You've got to also prepare all the food and like think about recipes and like think about ingredients and change all of that up. And that's, it seems, you know, it's, that's such a massively steep learning curve to handle all these things that must have, and I know you had small children at the time as well. So, <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, I, I find it, I find it difficult to, um, to, to do about just about anything with having yeah. small children around. How did you manage that? you know, looking back over the last five years, it's been, yeah, massive loads of work. Um, But I think that, you know, when you find something that like you just, that little thing inside of you is just like, I'm not going to give up on this. Like there's just that little nagging thing. And I remember there's plenty of times on that channel and, and on the current channel when something would go wrong. Like I remember specifically there was a video I was creating and it was, I believe it was a Christmas roast. So it was like something that required a lot of, you know, pre-planning, preparation. I mean, a roast, you can't just like throw a roast together. Um, and so I, uh, I remember though, I was getting ready to film and I was filming at night because I was usually filming after the kids went to bed. And so this was like late night hours. Talk about like the hustle being real. But I I remember I'd finished everything up and then I was getting ready to go, you know, transfer all the files, but I was like super tired. And then somehow as I was like setting, because I was just setting up in my home kitchen and then tearing it down every time. So it wasn't like there was just this setup I could always walk into. Um, And I just remember I lost the memory card. Like I could, like I'd done all these hours of work of filming this roast and filming all the B-roll and doing all this. And then I couldn't find, I couldn't find the memory card. And I'm like, I remember sobbing and telling my husband, like, this is the sign. This is the sign that I'm not supposed to do it. And, you know, the dramatic and the tears and all that. And, And then, you know, I gathered myself and then I remembered, no, no, no. Like if, if I can push through this, if I can, you know, take this as a sign that, you know, whenever you run into that roadblock, 
just the other side of that roadblock is some sort of payoff, some sort of good will come of this if I just persist a little bit longer. And so sure enough, that ended up being a super popular video on that channel, even though, again, that channel didn't necessarily turn into anything specific in its own right. Um, it was still something that propelled me to continue to make videos because I thought, oh, there is an audience here. Oh, these are some of the things I'm doing well. But that's just always something that I kind of remind myself whenever I hit a wall, whenever I run into something that I'm like, this is the sign that I should stop. That's always the sign to me that I need to just push a little bit further because the the payoff is is going to be the other side. Because most people do give up. Most people will hit that and say, all right, I give up. This is too hard. I'm going to, you know, go back to whatever's comfortable and and that feels familiar. But if you just push that a little bit further, that that's where the good stuff is. <laughs> I also feel like this it's a really important um part of 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 self-development is to come up against those roadblocks and yeah. solving these issues because the next time you hit a similar problem, you already know how to solve it because you've already experienced it. And I'm pretty I've sure I've never I've, lost another memory card since. I know exactly where my memory cards yeah. are at all times. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I think, you know, we all had to go through that at one point, you know. It's um I mean, we, you know, normally, of course, under normal circumstances in a you know, non-covert kind of situation, um Nick and me uh, would record this in the same space, so we'd be on the same set. Uh, but yeah. seeing that you know we're still in in the middle of a national lockdown, or actually we're coming to the end of the lockdown now, but we're still in our respective homes. Um, but there's a lot more to to take care of uh, because Nick usually does all the technical stuff, and I, you know, just show up and talk. <laughs> but so you know, that's not quite. But you know, it's uh, yeah. that's all, like I have to constantly remind myself, right? I got to turn the audio on. I got to record the audio, oh, and yeah. then I've got to. Make sure the lights are on, and then you know, do all this. Just, just a lot, a lot of things that can potentially go wrong. Well, and it is too, you know, when we talk about then doing commercial work or work for clients, and you know, you start to think about how can I make this production more effective and more efficient. Is it really then? It's it's just in terms of getting more bodies involved so that you can be more efficient and you don't have to drag something out over several days. You can do it get it done a lot quicker if you have you know somebody who's an expert prop stylist if you have somebody who's an expert food stylist if you have an assistant to help you run the lights if you have a digitech to make sure that the files are doing what they're supposed to and help keep track of all of that and you know so all those different people that's where we can really start to scale those kinds of things um, and make it much more efficient you know and I think about that just in terms of the content that I create that you know I have since started working with a video editor and just how much that has helped to both elevate the quality of the videos just because the editing is now being done by somebody who does that all the time and is really good at it and knows how to do things in Premiere that I don't know how to do and I don't need to learn how to do because he's great at that. And so that really helps to free me up then to you know invest more time in other things. But now I'm seeing too, I'm like, okay, now this is then where we get an additional camera person because yeah, I'm still running around turning on all the things and checking all the things. And you know so that's again, just a additional time that how much more could I produce and how much more efficient and just better quality and how much more I would enjoy it. Because do I enjoy running around, turning on all the cameras and making sure I've got the angles and, oh, am I still in focus? <laughs> nice. And, you know, I mean, all those things. Um, but, you know, I think that comes over time. And I'm just so happy, though, that I did 
start out and I have done all of it all myself for so long because now as I hire people, I know what I'm looking for and I know if they're doing it right and I know if they're not doing it right and uh, what's important to me so that then as I build that team, uh, I, I know exactly what it is they're doing and I can be so excited when when I don't have to do it. <laughs> yeah. but the, you know, the other thing about that really is, is that it also makes for a much more relaxing um, experience because I I remember the first time I did a volume headshot shoot. You know, whilst previously I've been doing headshots, you know, of individuals or sometimes it would be like two people. Um, but I remember the first time I got a call. Um, you know, it's like, oh, can you come in this afternoon and shoot fifty people? And like fifty fifty people. Whoa! And I've got how much time? I got four hours. Oh, okay. That's including setup and breakdown. I'm like. Okay. And then, of course, you, yeah, and all of this runs to you. Go, Man, this is going to be the most stressful experience you could possibly imagine because, you know, I've got so much time for each individual person and I've got to, you know, they've got to pick the photos and blah, blah, and all that kind of stuff. So, and then I thought, like, no, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire an assistant and I'm going to get somebody else to line them all up to make sure they're in the right place at the right time. And then I'm get, going to get somebody else on a laptop you know, taking care of the, um, you know, of, of the person, once they're taking the photo, they can choose the shot that they want in the end. You know, that can all happen whilst the next person comes in and I can be relaxed behind the camera and I can, you know, build that little relationship, that little three minute relationship and get people to relax yeah. in front of the camera and I can focus on that. And as an end result, um, it was a extremely relaxing um, experience for me um, and for the client and as an end result of that, you know, we usually we actually managed to uh, to expand our business into that quite a, quite a lot because um, it then became known that we could handle those those kind of situations yeah. quite easily. Um, and that was a, that was a that was literally like a light bulb moment where I was stressing out like there was no tomorrow, you know, um, over this job. And I'm thinking I'm stupid. I need somebody else to do this for me. It's going to cost yeah. me. Okay, fair enough, but it's worth it. Because, you know, but that's a key moment, right? Is because you do have that little thought in the back of your mind, like, oh, this is going to cost me money. If I just did it myself, I could keep that money. But you see that, yeah, that spending money ultimately, in if you kind of take that long view as opposed to that short term, very immediate, like that long view is, oh, this is going to turn into I can continue to get hired. This is going to expand my network. This is going to be well worth that investment. And I think those are those decisions again, just like taking jobs that you feel like you're not completely ready for. It's the same thing. It's that same sort of feeling of you, it's like mm, I'd rather not hire somebody, but like just thinking about how much this is going to make my life easier and the better quality product at the end of the day, always do that. And in the long run, of course, it because it does allow you to to take on these kind of jobs, you know, in the future, mm -hmm. it basically means you can charge more, you can you can quote accordingly, and and so um, you know it just opens your business up to a, a lot more opportunities. That's what I've found. Um, that's certainly, you know, it's come it's come in handy, um, you know, for me directly um, in the conference world, uh, where very often. You know, it's it's. You're, I'd be glad if I only had to shoot fifty people, but it's usually two to four hundred people at this conference. You know, they all they all in the country just for, at the same time in this in the same space. And then it's you know it's the thing of like, well, seeing that they're all here, we might as well do headshots so they all look the same. But there's four hundred people and you got a day. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Exactly. That's and it's like, okay, well then I need you know not one assistant but two or three, and then it, you know, but you get it rolling that way, and it's you know. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So, and it's, it, but that was again. It was like a learning, a learning um, experience. You know, literally from, you know, from starting just shooting one person to then taking a chance, and you know, taking a step, jumping off the cliff, and just you know, see what happens. <laughs> basically. Yeah. yeah. Now, 
Now, I also want to talk to you about your new book because you've just, well, you're about to um, huh? release a brand new book. So we've got to yes. talk about that because uh, when I saw that, I just thought I'd love it. This is like, uh, this, is, uh, this is such an awesome idea. So the book is called Picture Perfect Food, Master the Art of Food Photography. And yes, it, it really goes, I mean, it kind of, you know, obviously it kind of, it makes sense if you look at it in conjunction with your YouTube channel, it makes perfect sense. Uh, but yeah, it, I love the concept. So tell us a little bit about the concept. Yeah. Well, I was approached by a publisher who uh, said, oh, you know, do you, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I'm like, writing a book? Oh, that sounds very intense. And turns out it is a very intense process. So <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, I thought it's interesting because, you know, I definitely think that like, you know, we talked about platforms and mediums and I do think that like, you know, again, kind of part of the magic of my teaching is the ability to teach on camera and, and communicate via video. Um, but fortunately I had great English teachers in high school and, you know, in college. And so I feel like I've got some solid writing skills and I thought this would be an interesting way too to just, you know, connect with people in a different way and explore food photography and teach food photography in a way that I haven't before um, that brings people in that, you know, it may, it may just change their ability to see things in a different way. And uh, so we were kind of batting around different ideas and I got inspired by, you know, there's different books out there that'll take you through like, you know, here's a little lesson for every week of the year or, you know, one, one a day sort of, sort of thing. And I thought, what if I did that for food photography, you know, 52 lessons, one lesson for each week of the year. Um, and then some sort of like personal challenge so that whatever that lesson is, that then you're putting that into practice and that that could be applicable too. Cause, you know, knowing that I wanted to create something, at least in communication with this um, publisher that we wanted to create something that was applicable for, you know, anybody who's, you know, shooting on a cell phone, but also somebody who's more experienced and, you know, knows a lot about cameras um, that I think that no matter where we're at in our journey, we can always return to certain lessons and maybe, you know, certain lessons in your head, but then that challenge of revisiting that and thinking about that in a different way, you know, that we, we know aperture at this point, like the back of our hand and, but have we maybe explored it from a different perspective or thought about it differently? And so that's really what this book um, does is kind of prompts you with different activities that they're grouped into seven different kind of main chapters. So there's the chapter all about different camera settings. And then there's a chapter about uh, light. And so lessons inside of the concept of light. And then moving into uh, composition, which is definitely a huge part of photography in general and very uh, something a lot of folks want to learn more about in terms of food photography. And then moving into prop styling. So kind of that, that topic that we were talking about earlier that's a tricky thing, but teaching about prop styling and then food styling and then kind of rounding it out with more of the kind of personal inspiration and getting ideas and staying inspired and um, keep on going when the going gets tough. And so that's that's sort of the scope of the book and it really leads you through all of that. So somebody could in theory, you know, start it one day and then a year later have ex executed 52 different images uh, that really kind of up their game. Because I do, you know, we see in the food, in the photography realm in general, you know, you do like these 365 challenges or different personal challenges. And that's where you can, in your own personal work sort of explore and get creative and, and get new ideas. 
those kind of challenges, like the three six five um, or fifty two, you know, um, an image a week yeah. challenges. And I've seen a lot of a lot of people um, have been doing those over the lockdown here in the UK. You know, we were like seriously locked down uh, for the first time in. April last year for about three months and then again in yeah. November and now it's the third time around since Christmas you know been like literally shut in the houses um and you got to find things to do you know you, it's it's not good for anybody to just be um <laughs> shut indoors and you know a lot of um you know we we, we set up like a, a zoom group I was just almost like a, a I don't know, a photography therapy group I would call it or whatever it's basically oh, nice. just uh, you know a zoom a zoom call where people could um could get on and hook up um every wednesday afternoon or something like that um and we could just talk about like photography related issues you know somebody's got had like no motivation or something we'll talk about that and we'll find different ideas and come up with creative things that somebody could do around the house in the garden or whatever and uh and the one thing that you know, became very clear very quickly was that just by doing something like every day, taking a photo every day or or, or creating, you know, I don't know, a flat lay every week or whatever it is, you just can't help but get better at it. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it's just like learning how to play an instrument. If you practice every, you know, if you practice 10 minutes every day, you will get better. You just can't help it. It's yeah. just going to happen. So that's why when I first, um, you know, read about your book and I thought, like, this is such a great idea. Like, you know, you have a challenge, you have a week, you know, um, and then you have something that progresses you further. Yep. It's yeah. exactly how Nick Nick and me also teach music. So that's you know so hence which is where we're from an educational point. Um this makes perfect sense. This is exactly how we structure our lesson plans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you teach guitar. Yeah. And I'm excited too, because there's a lot that's in the book that, you know, through the book writing process and working with the publisher who is just, it was so much fun to work with them and collaborate with them because, you know, working with them, the the folks who I was interacting with there aren't, aren't photographers. I mean, I feel like in 2021, everybody in some way, shape or form is a photographer, right? Because we've all got phones in our pockets. And so that just kind of comes with the territory. But it was great to be working with and collaborating with people who weren't photographers who could look at that from a perspective of, does this make sense? Because I really, again, I wanted to make it very inclusive for kind of all experience levels, um, but then sending it to other friends who are experienced food photographers specifically and being, you know, that they were reading things and going, oh, I never thought about that. And like, I really, as I was writing the book, I didn't, I didn't share it with the audience. I kept it very under wraps until we were ready to, um, you know, get into the pre-sale process and everything. Um, but I was constantly pulling the audience about things that were challenges for them. And so a lot of that is infused into the book too. Like there was, you know, when I asked, I was working on the food styling chapter and I, you know, I was going through all the things and thinking about what are the most challenging foods like meats. Meats are always hard to photograph. I don't care who you are, you know, the, the you know, how to, how to prepare them and how to set them up and how to do different things to make it, you know, a little bit more forgiving in the photography process. Um, you know, thinking about frozen foods, frozen things are always hard, you know, so popsicles and ice creams, things like that. And then uh, I pulled the audience on. I said, okay, guys, what is your, what is like the most challenging food to photograph, you know, just Instagram poll and like far and away, worse than meats, worse than, you know, flat foods, worse than drinks, all these other things that to me are so much more challenging. Everybody's saying soups and salads. 
salads. And I'm like, really? Soups and salads? Okay, this is good. So, because again, you know, what's challenging for me or what comes easy for me may not be the case for others. So really then taking a critical look and deep diving into, okay, where are the challenges with soups? And and what are some of the strategies that I put into place? And then, you know, all pretty much all of the lessons throughout the book, um, have an image that I created. So I did not only all the writing, but also all of the photography uh, for the book. And it's all brand new images created specifically for the book is hoping to, because I remember when I was first getting started and like started taking food photography seriously, one of the things that really helped, I think, propel my skills was in finding other images and sort of recreating those images. And anytime I see people do that with images that I've created on my YouTube you know, lessons and things like that. I take that as like such a badge of honor, knowing that I've inspired somebody to action and to go do that. And so it's very explicitly like in the front of the book, like feel free to recreate these images. Or if you like something in an image, take that and run with that and turn that into your own um, particular flavor, put your own you know spin on it or like straight up recreate it. That's great too, because I think you learn so much, especially when you're getting started in that process of going, okay, well, how did they get that to do that? And, and kind of that struggle and that experimentation process. Uh, so I just, I can't wait to get this in people's hands. It's, I find, I find this really, um, it's, this is really something that I find very difficult about, um, about photographing food in general is, um, this is typically example, you go to, you go to a restaurant, you go to like a fast food place, you know, like McDonald's or something. And you look at the, I don't know, the Big Mac or something or the, the burger on the, on the, on the, on the photo, and then you open the box and you're like, that doesn't look anything like it. No, it's not that. Yeah, it's not that at all. It's a, um, it's an advertising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I find that really fascinating. Um, and a lot of the things that, that uh, personally I, I love watching are uh, things about how to prepare certain things, like how to prepare a bottle, you know, like, you know, when it's this typical, like a uh, beer bottle kind of, uh, shot where you have like pearls of conden condensation running down mm -hmm. the side and all that kind of stuff um, until you realize that that's not actually just, you know, it's not condensation at all. It's just all, you know, it's just made to look like that, but it's actually solid. And I find it extremely satisfying and interesting, uh, you know, to learn how to do these kind of, these very specific things. I also, um, yeah. I, I actually think they're also the things that put people off trying mm. food photography in the first place because they hear that, oh yeah, but that's fake and this is that, there's pins in that, there's all all sorts of things like that going on. And I think that does, particularly if you're a newer photographer, puts them off potentially doing that. Think, well, I'm only going to take something that's like a, an iPhone snap or, or whatever. But you don't always have to use that stuff, right? Particularly when you're you're getting started, they're for the very specific reasons it doesn't mean you always have to use them so you know I, I don't shoot food at all so what would you how would you suggest i or one of our listeners who are thinking about doing food photography how, how would you suggest we go about getting started with it and feeling good about doing it too well you know my suggestion is always to go with food that you can put in place and that isn't going to change on you you know don't 
don't try to do all the things all at once. Um, you know, I've, I've got a lighting course that I've been uh, updating and working on. And one of the things that I was very specific about in terms of creating all the lessons for that course was that all we're shooting throughout the whole thing, for the most part, is all produce, like fresh produce that just looks good. Like I don't have to do anything to it. I don't have to manipulate it. I Like a pear is beautiful, right? There's a reason that all those still life painters were painting fruits, you know, because they're beautiful and they, and they can sit for a long time. And so uh, that's always kind of that recommendation and go get just a couple beautiful pieces of fruit or some lettuce or something just with some interesting texture or color, and then just explore that subject. You know, the, the second that we try to think, okay, I'm going to make mom's famous, casserole and I'm going to do all these things. And then it you kind of get bogged down in the food preparation process. So really simplify that by just picking more simple subjects. And honestly, some of my favorite images that I've ever shot, like have minimal props, have minimal, you know, other components to it. It's just about really capitalizing on what's the most beautiful part of that um, particular food, you know, slicing a lemon, you know, what's the most beautiful part of the lemon and how can we position the light to maybe create some glow uh, through the the inside of that lemon. You know, there's a lot of different ways to explore those kind of very simple subjects. Um, and two, in those kind of situations, then too, I think that it does help to have like a longer focal length um, so that we can really zero in and just focus on that one thing as opposed to trying to... I feel like we just get so overwhelmed by the styling process um, as opposed to really studying what I think are some of the more important parts of the food photography process is really paying attention to the lighting and how light is affecting the surface of that subject and how the shadows are being created and creating these little specular highlights and you know really extracting all those things. So whenever possible and whenever you're practicing, don't don't go try to make a Thanksgiving dinner. Just stick to the beautiful produce. <laughs> Use what you already know, right? You already know a little bit about lighting. You already know something about focal length. Try just, it's about taking what you know and applying it to this specific scenario, right? And But that's photography in general. And I think people can, can see food photography as... Um, Un- unreachable because there there are people out there like you who are so fantastic at what they do that they think I'm never going to be able to create that. That's never yeah. going to happen. You've got to start somewhere though, and you and this is why your idea about your book and the way you you structure it and the way you've um, over the over the year. This is why learning things in that way is so important. It's so so important. And in a previous life, I used to do training as well, and. Yeah, exactly how I used to do it with um, people I was training there. Same principles. Well, don't you think too that, you know, when you sort of cross over into other disciplines in the photography realm, that then you come back to whatever's your home base. You know, I know that when I started shooting more portraits, because, you know, I started doing cookbooks and needed to shoot author headshots or, you know, in restaurants, photographing the chefs. So learning about, you know, watching all the, you know, portrait photographer YouTubes and reading all the books and things like that. And I'm like, oh, I mean light is still light. Modifiers are still modifiers. Like all these same things exist. We just have to think about what's what's going to flatter that subject and thinking about that, but then taking some of the inspiration and those ideas. And, you know, before shooting portrait lighting, I hadn't really ever used a kicker or I hadn't used a rim light. And well, okay, can I bring that now back into food photography? And, you know, maybe it's not going to be the same editorial style as I'm used to doing, but 
maybe I'm going to throw something different into this because now I'm seeing food photography as a portrait photographer. And I think that vice versa, if you're portrait photographer suddenly seeing food photography, you're going to, it's going to inform some decisions and change some things, I think, or at least give you some new ideas in shooting portraits. Yeah, absolutely. Mark. We actually, we spoke about this uh, in, in last week's episode as well. Yeah. Um, Nick, Nick, and, Nick and myself, uh, d- during the whole lockdown thing, uh, we, and, you know, but we couldn't photograph people or other humans because for some reason that was frowned upon at that point, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, we decided to go out and shoot cars. And so neither neither Nick nor myself really had very much uh, experience with uh, with photographing um, cars, but we had, uh, in fact, that was inspired by a guest on the show who was an automotive photographer and, uh, you know, and they told us about this technique of light painting. We were like, oh, okay, well, that's a cool yeah. thing to do. We can do that, you know. Um, and so we went out and did that and... Um, and although we were kind of happy with the car itself, we just, you know, there was just something missing. It just, there was just something and we couldn't put our finger on it until we spoke to um, another guest and, uh, you know, and he said, you know, if you have trouble with the background, just think of car photography like it's landscape photography with a car in it. And we immediately went, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Of course, let's think about the location first. And once we find a really cool spot, then let's just think what car can we put into that so that it looks cool. And then that totally changed the photography completely because then things started tied together. We Previous to that, we had literally just focused on the car itself. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, shooting it, I think in my backyard at one point and it just really didn't, <laughs> it's like a Tesla in front of some rundown garages. It didn't look good at all. Yeah. So um, it's incredible. So, yeah, so I feel like you're absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, you, you learn from everything that you do and it ultimately all comes back together and informs the next thing that, that you do um, from then on mm-hmm. in. Was there ever anything that you prepared for a photo shoot that went totally, completely and utterly wrong? Oh, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't pinpoint one. I mean, it still happens. There's things that I will, uh, you know, personal work or different projects. And I'll be like, okay, let's do this today. And then I make that. I'm like, oh, that's not going to work. I mean, for sure. All the time, all the time. I can't, I can't pinpoint any in particular. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of images on my hard drives that have never seen the day of light, light of day. So <laughs> you must be cooking a lot I mean, when you, when you're prepping um, all these, these different things. Yeah, I haven't been uh, quite as much recently because I've been more in production phase on a lot of other projects and things like that. But for sure, in the process of doing the book, you know, I really I focused on the writing first because I'm I'm I can't multitask very well. I'm very good at like focusing on one project at a time. So did all the writing and then did all the photography to make sure that the photos would then match with the the content of the book. Um And so, you know, certainly those, you know, it was like six weeks of nonstop photography and nonstop cooking. So there's definitely a lot of cooking going on um, in that, in that timeframe. Absolutely. Which some of it we ate and some of it we're like, I, I have poked and prodded at that for now for a couple hours. Nobody wants to eat that. So (laughs) (laughs) So your book is going to be available from... I think from April onwards, is that right? In the United States, and then it'll be um, it'll be available in Europe probably um, of the month after that, I would guess, huh? Yep, it takes, yeah. Apparently there's boats involved. I'm like, I thought there were airplanes, but yeah, apparently they have to like 
go via cargo ship and who even knows? I don't know. But uh, yeah, it, it'll release April 20th here in the US and then uh, otherwise worldwide, uh, we'll, UK and Europe will start to see it uh, around the May timeframe. Um, but it is fortunately also available via all sorts of different retailers between Amazon and uh, Book Depository is great for those who are international. Um, we are currently in negotiations to make sure that it's available in India because there are a lot of folks, uh, a lot of food photographers is excited about the book. So we're currently trying to figure out the distribution on that side of things. Again, fortunately, having a great publisher solves a lot of those problems. So, uh, you know, but the pandemic also complicates things. But hopefully now here as we're on the downhill slope of that, we'll be able to get it in everybody's hands. And then um, around June timeframe, once everybody's received the book, there is a little special code on page nine of the book, little link that people can go to to sign up for a free workshop, private workshop just for people who own the book, special link there. Um, and so then throughout June, we'll be doing those workshops so we can do those in real time and uh, experience the book together. Nick, I feel some more challenges coming on there. You know, between <laughs> you and me. It's like you're reading my mind from your house. <laughs> I do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's going to be interesting. Absolutely. Um, that's going to be very cool. Yeah, we're definitely going to be, I think, yeah, you'll be seeing more of that on this show. Um, you know, if you're, obviously, if you are listening to the audio version of this uh, of this podcast, you know, make sure you go ahead and uh, and check out our YouTube channel where you can not only listen to our sultry voices, but also see our beautiful faces in full Technicolor. Um, all you have to do is go to www.youtube.com forward slash camera shake. And uh, once you're there, why don't you just you know, do us a flavor and hit that subscribe button, ring the bell sort of thing, you know, whatever YouTube would say, uh, you know, just do that. It'd be awesome. Anyway, so... Um, now, I was wondering, um, I know I picked up something by watching some of your recent videos. And I, I know that for years you've been shooting Canon. This is like the, this is like the, Ooh, the technical yes. photographer kind of conversation. <laughs> this is the nerd right here. moment, That's right? That's the nerd moment, yes. <laughs> you've taken my question away, Kay. I was ah. intrigued by this. <laughs> so, um, so I know you've been shooting Canon for, for a long while and you've recently changed to Nikon. Mm -hmm. And what what's the like what is what was the motivation behind that? So yeah, so well, so my very very first DSLR was actually a Nikon D three thousand, which had a very sad end when it got dropped on the concrete floor and never recovered. And this was when I was first starting out and got to know a local photographer, and he said. This is right as like Sony's mirrorless game was just really starting to heat up. And he said, you need to go get a Sony mirrorless camera. It's going to change your life. Now, at the time, again, I was still shooting an auto. So to say that that was going to change my life wasn't, but it was fine. Like I went and got the Sony A6000, but you know, then I started to watch as I started to YouTube and I started to, you know, create content. I noticed like everybody's shooting Canon. I gotta, I gotta get like, I gotta do what everybody else is doing. Right. So I went and got a Canon 7DD. That's where I really built my business and really dug into that camera. Um, then upgraded to the 5D Mark IV, shot that for the better part of, oh, I don't know, two and a half, three years. Um, but one of the things that I always found a challenge, you know, I felt like, over the course of my YouTube channel and everything I'd done, like I'd always like, I felt like I was really in control of my images. It's really control of my lighting. But the one thing that just always felt a little off in editing was that just the reds, orange, and yellows for me were just like 
a little too much, right? Like for me personally, in my own personal taste, and I could just never get the oranges, reds, and yellows, those warmer tones to, to read the way I wanted. And I thought, well, maybe it's just, again, it's something I'm doing wrong or something I need to change, whatever. So I was having this conversation with a friend who he, he's a, um, like a celebrity commercial celebrity photographer, and he does a lot of, um, you know, crazy ad campaigns. And he's, he is way too smart about cameras. Like we have conversations and I'm like, I can't even process what you're saying. But I was having this, I was lamenting this with him and I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And he said, well, you know, Joni, you might want to try Nikon because here's the little thing is there is a slight difference in terms of the way that the colors are rendered in the different camera systems. And this was like news to me. And I'm thinking, really? So he said, I forget exactly which of his Nikons he loaned me, but he said, take this one home, go play with with it and and see how it goes and you know there is a lot of warm tones in food like a lot of food is warm toned um and so i took it home and i'm like well gosh darn like i did a lot of side by side comparisons of the canon versus the nikon and even still have my sony camera and i was pulling i was like i had no idea that the colors really like out of camera are different and those files are different um and then the way that they behave once we get into lightroom or photoshop or capture one that there's they behave differently so I was like, oh gosh, darn it. So then I returned his camera and I thought, well, let's just, I'll buy an Nikon camera and start shooting with it for a while. Cause I do feel like you buy a new camera and you think, oh, this has changed my life. This is amazing. And then we get all hyped. But then over time, that sort of, wanes. So just to make sure that it was indeed like something that was really going to work for me, I bought a used uh, D750 Nikon uh, and then just started shooting with that. And there were certain things that coming from the Canon world, I was used to that I do think from a workflow perspective and like the user-friendly side of things, I kind of missed. But I also think part of that is just, you know, experience with a particular camera system. Um, But I was like, no, we're just, we're going to double down on this D750. And I actually ended up shooting my entire book on the D750 because I really did just fall in love with those colors. And that's that's the thing, right? The Nikon colors. And so uh, then at that point, I got a new contract for a big project that I thought, okay, the D750 is great and I'm super proud of it, but I do need like something that's going to have one of the things. And this is like the stupidest little thing. But one of the things that inspired me then to go for the uh, Z7, so graduating into the Nikon mirrorless world, um, is the ability when you're shooting tethered to capture one or drag and frame if you're doing stop motion animation, that you have the live view on the computer that in a lot of the Nikon DSLRs, you lose any functionality on the camera. You can't see on the LCD and you can't like, you know, fire the trigger. You can't do any of the things like the camera is pretty much just a brick at that point. All control has to happen on the computer. And that was just something from Nike, from Canon world. I was used to being able to kind of jump between the computer and the camera. And so the Z series has the ability to still have full control, which is like the dumbest little thing. But when you get used to a workflow, that was just like something that I was like, if I could just have that, like the Nikon colors with the workflow that I was used to from the Canon. And so the Z series, um, does that. And I do love, you know, the larger, larger files, but, uh, been super duper happy. And, and the glass is great in terms of the new Nikon Z lens.
lenses as well. So yeah, that was uh, that was what kind of precipitated that change. But I still have the Canons. I'm actually filming myself. This is the Canon 5D Mark IV that's capturing me right now. So I'm still very much loving um, the Canons for the video. But I'm sure as we continue to watch all of the different manufacturers doing and racing to each other to see who can do better, um, you know, that'll all evolve and change. This, this is the thing, right? It's yeah. it's so important that you, you you made the change for a reason, and for you it was a really good reason because because of the color sciences within these cameras, it just makes sense for the type of work that you're doing. Makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense. Not, uh, Canon do edge towards magenta and yellows and reds a bit more. Funny enough, that's the colors that are in our skins, and <laughs> that's why I was, you know part of the reason why uh, skin color looks so good on on Canon, right? And mm -hmm. um, Sony's edge towards green. Not really sure what that's good for, but just <laughs> <laughs> everybody looks sick all the time. <laughs> it's just wrong. Oh, in my, well, my I opinion, always but... say, I, I mean, this is all in jest because I know I. I know plenty of Sony photographers, right? But no, I just always say like Sony colors, man, they're for hipsters. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> well, I always think I say I think the same thing about Fuji colors, and you know, and in a weird way, I love them. Like I, I love Fuji colors. It's the one thing because I'm. It's funny you mentioned the D750 because that's exactly what I'm filming myself on right now, and that's that's my main yeah. uh, studio camera. It's just mainly because it's such a versatile um, piece of gear. You know, it's it's such a great oh, yeah. camera for so many different things. Um, but it does have its drawbacks. And I was wondering whether you were going to mention, well, if you hadn't mentioned the, the live view tethering thing, I would have mentioned it because it's exact. I, I'm, I'm like battling with the same thing every time I do um, a flat lay, for example. It's the same thing. It's, it's frustrating. I have I have like little screens, like little like outboard screens that I that I use so I can actually see what I'm doing, uh, you know, when you're adjusting one little thing. And I yeah. know, it's highly frustrating. The one thing that if, if Nikon could do this and I'm like, if they could do this, this would like, I would be sold for life. Um, because the, the one reason again, and this is like you said, like we do these things and the things that are important to us are not important to other people. So it all depends on the kind of work you're doing. But one of the things that Canon has done really, really well, and that I just give them nonstop kudos for is their tethering software, their EOS Utility 3. Now I shoot with Capture One for stills, but when it comes to shooting video, and especially if you're a content creator or somebody who's making their own videos, that you want the ability to control the camera while not being behind the camera. And so being able to use their EOS Utility 3 software, which is free, just download it. Um, and you can change camera settings, you can adjust autofocus, you can hit the record button, you can save straight to the hard drive. Like it is so fantastic. And Nikon does, doesn't have that. I mean, there is like their camera control, but it doesn't work in video mode. It only works in stills and Capture One doesn't do video. So I'm like, who's going to come out with a software that I can use my Nikon tethered? I mean, unless there is, do you uh, know anything? Oh, yes. So I may have some really awesome news um, about this okay. because Nikon are actually coming out uh, very soon. Um, and I've just read this on Petapixel, actually. And they're coming out with, um, uh, with, a, with a piece of software that will give you a lot of that functionality apparently it's basically a video stroke photo editing software that's specifically geared towards nikon cameras and nikon files um, and i'm wondering okay, if it does video then i'm sold because i saw that release but i thought it was only for stills so if it's for video yeah, apparently it's apparently uh, from what i've read it's also for video uh, it's i took note of that because um my um uh, my daughter is doing her a levels which is like the yeah. um i don't know do you know what a levels are it's like the british <laughs> it's the british version of your high school diploma 
Ah, very good. Essentially. Um, and she's, uh, she picked photography as one of her main subjects. Um, nice. And she shoots on a little uh, Nikon D3000. In fact, I think she's currently shooting about D5300 or something. But Nice. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, but we're like, she needs some, some editing software and we're talking about, you know, Photoshop elements and whatever. Um, but I just saw that Nikon are bringing out the software and it's free. You know, I'm thinking that's going to be great. You know, so that's something possibly to keep an eye out on. Um, I will, I will. Cause to me, that's like the only thing that I really miss, you know, when I, when I'm filming with the Nikon is, but, but there are some other advantages, um, you know, and one little, like for those out there who love to poo poo the Nikon Z autofocus, I think they're full of it because the Nikon Z autofocus and facial tracking, I've had zero issues with. I think it's fantastic. So anybody who's like, oh, it's terrible. I'm like, wait, to who? What are you talking about? Because it's it does a great job. <laughs> so the one thing that I'm always reminded of is it's really that there really isn't a bad camera nowadays because you know, the, the differences are so minute. And I'd like to think about it like, you know, 10 years ago when I autofocus wasn't even a thing, people still managed to shoot really great portraits. And, uh, you know, and 20 years or like 30 years ago when digital wasn't a thing, you know, there were great photographers and film. So, you know, sometimes it's sort of like a little bit like, okay, well, you know, if, you know, if, if, you, can't, if you can't create a photo without eye focus, so maybe you should rethink your career. Is what the yeah. cynic in me would think. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know. But it's true. You can create a beautiful image, you know, that I can hop on a Canon, a Sony, a Nikon, a Fuji. I, it doesn't matter what the camera is, a cell phone. You know, the, the images are going to be informed by the experience you have and the way that you see the world and the way that you see the images. And so, you know, it's anybody who's saying that the camera is holding them back from creating beautiful images um, or, you know, the time, the thing that I hear all the time people tell me, you know, is they're, okay, I'm ready to upgrade to a full frame camera. And I go, why? And <laughs> yeah. they go, well, because I need to upgrade. And I go, no, you don't. It, it Don't upgrade until you have a very specific reason like what what is the thing that's holding you back if if it's just purely you just want to physically be closer to the subject we'll just change your focal length like let's not go invest in an entire camera to go from crop sensor to full frame like let's what are the specific like for me i needed to be able to control both the camera and the computer at the same time that i didn't want to have to just rely on the computer like that was a very specific and compelling reason that i was willing to shell out you know three thousand dollars for that little convenience that's now simplified my workflow yeah. What a great conversation we, with uh, Bubray Perry a few weeks ago. Um, you know, we're talking about exactly that, you know, uh, people who start out maybe on a crop sensor camera and think they have to sort of graduate to full frame because that's what all the pros use and so on. And of course, until we realized that, you know, originally medium format was the pro thing and then 35 mil or full frame was like the kind of amateur thing until that became so good that it then became the pro thing. And of course, now when you look at, um, you look at what Sony does on the APS-C sensor, uh, in particular, Fuji. I mean, Fuji doesn't even have full frame um, yeah. sensors, uh, but, but that camera's incredible. The XT4 is such an incredible camera. Um, and if I, if it wasn't that I had so much money tied up in in Nikon glass, you know, I'd probably um, switch in a heartbeat. But um, it really ultimately doesn't. It really doesn't matter. I, I don't get the whole, yeah. When people say that full frame changes their life, I just don't get it. Cause I'm like, my life did not change. No, 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's one of these things. Personal preference, of course, I do think, uh, you know, comes into it, um, especially when it comes to like color rendering and stuff like that. So, I mean, it is true sometimes when I look at, um, at portraits uh, shot on Canon, you know, right out of the gate, um, as far as the skin tones are concerned, I, I can see a clear difference there, especially on video, I have to say. Um, when I compare mm -hmm. that to to um, to the Nikon uh, cameras that I use, but but likewise, uh, when I shoot flat lays, I I actually especially when there's um, kind of cast iron and like uh, kind of rustic materials involved, that I just love the Nikon. It just mm -hmm. uh, there's something that happens to those textures. And the colors, that's just, you can't, it's not even something I can put my finger on it. And probably they could analyze that much more, um, much more scientifically <laughs> tell me exactly what, yeah. the, what the difference is. But it's, this is just a feel, like a feel thing for me. I just, it just feels better to me. Um, that's why I've got such a hard time um, making a decision, uh, you know, it's, you know, setting my Nikon gear, because I really don't want to actually for that reason. <laughs> We've yeah. been saying this for so long now, okay, haven't we, that you, you have to have a really good reason, A, for upgrading your gear, general upgrading, and B, for transitioning to a different brand as well. Because that costs, I, full disclosure, mm. I've just transitioned to Canon, but I had some good reasons, good, good, good yeah. reasons for it. But there's there's also the right tool for the, for the job. So it's all about what is it mm. that you're shooting? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what camera you use for it. We've established that many times. However, when you do get to certain points, there are different re Nikon's great at certain things. Canon's great at other things. Yeah, they're both they're both good at all of those things. But one does edge each other in certain scenarios. So unless you're getting making that money back, unless you're in a situation where you're using this for this reason every single day. Save your money, spend it somewhere else, keep yourself working, and relax. Don't worry about those things that really don't matter. Just you now, you know. Of course, you know the other truth is is that the client will never know, and the client doesn't no. really care. Yeah, <laughs> it's really just us no. photographers who are like you know, um, like pulling out all these little details um, because ultimately, it really doesn't make make any difference. Um, you know, I always think it's. You know, spending it, spending a ton of money on on changing your gear, you got to have from a business perspective, you got to have a really good reason to do that. You know, and so I always ask myself, does it make does it make sense for me in my situation in my business? When my camera body gets to the point, which it kind of is, uh, where I'm thinking, okay, well, it's going to wear out now because it's got, God knows, hundred fifty thousand shots you know, well, or whatever it is at the moment, you know, I'm kind of thinking, okay, well now I'm getting to the point where I'm running a risk. If I, you know, if I'm at a conference, uh, you know, and you shoot a lot and you can't really afford it failing on me, then that's the reason that's a compelling reason to, um, to, to change your gear for me anyway. Um, yeah. but cool. Uh, now one other t slightly technical thing that I'm really interested in is your stop motion. Um, stuff yeah. that you do that's um i saw that actually in fact i think i saw that on your channel for the first time i kind of thought you know that's such a good idea how do you create these little stop motion animations um 
that would really interest me to know. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, it's kind of an art in and of itself. And there's definitely a lot of little nuanced and interesting uh, details about capturing stop motion animation. But um, I mean, it's just, it's a bunch of stills all stacked together and throw those all into Premiere and or Final Cut Pro, whatever you're using for video editing and get the speed just right. And it looks like, you know, the, the food is coming to life and it's animating itself. And it's definitely, I think, I mean, it's one of the oldest forms of you know creating video but uh you know think back to mickey mouse and you know old school cartoons and things like that so it's definitely been around for a long long time but i think it's having a resurgence because the way that stop motion just looks in terms of on social media and it's very eye-catching and there's a lot of creative fun things that you can do uh, that you can't do in sort of more traditional video Uh, i also like stop motion animation because though it is definitely very labor intensive because all your pretty much doing is, you know, if you have a, you know, coffee cup, for example, and you want that coffee cup and you're shooting it at kind of this straight on angle and you want it to turn around without hands and you want it to turn around on its own, like you just, you know, turn it, take a shot, turn it, take a shot, turn it, take a shot, you know, all these subsequent images one after another in order to build that together to make a video. Um, but it, it, yeah, it just has this eye-catching sort of eye-popping sort of interesting fun and, and creative things that you can do with that. So when I'm doing stop motion animation, I mean, you can pretty much do it with just your camera as long as you have the ability to kind of see the scene. But there's a lot of really cool tools out there. Uh, I use Dragon Frame, which is a software for stop motion animation. And it's got a lot of very cool, helpful things um, for both the live view to be able to see the scene, but then it's got an onion skin effect. So you can see the most previous shot so that you can make sure everything's perfectly lined up. Because one of the secrets in effective stop motion is that you have continuity from image to image. So certainly shooting that with uh, you know an artificial light source and that you don't have any sort of changes in your exposure and as far as the scene is really locked down and you're on a tripod uh, but then you can just introduce all sorts of fun little actions and then stitch that all together in in video and you know again where video is not as forgiving is that if I'm doing a cooking video and I pour something and I don't pour it right, well, then I'm like, I'm kind of stuck, right? I've got to restage the whole thing again. Whereas when it comes to the stop motion animation, we can just go back a frame or two as opposed to having to kind of start back at the beginning of the sequence like we would um, in more traditional video format. So it's it's definitely a lot of fun though. Again, it is definitely much more labor intensive because you just think about like inching a cupcake around or moving something across the frame inch by inch by inch. Um, but it's a blast. How do you decide what um, uh, like frame rate you're going to be be at? You know, are you always sh- shooting with the idea that this is going to be in you know, at 24 frames, 30 frames, whatever it might be? And then how do you decide, okay, how far do I need to move this mug how how does that, how does that process kind of kind of work as you're going going through the um, photos? You definitely get a feel for it the more you've done it um, because if you want something to like zoom really quickly across the screen, right? Like we're gonna have it make bigger leaps from each shot to the next um, so that just in terms of that distance that it's making that distance quicker Um, whereas if you want something that looks like a lot more fluid just like video would be then we're really packing that you know you talk about the 24 frames per second then we're doing like ones right so that each individual like maybe ones or twos so that you've get uh like 
two, two of those frames are the same exact image. Um, and so kind of that'll have a very different look versus running it at 12 frames per second, which I kind of like. Some of this is very stylistic and personal, and I'm sure also evolves over time in the grand spectrum. I've not been doing stop motion animation all that long. So I'm still kind of developing my own personal tastes and style with it. But, you know, it, shooting at the 10 or 12 frames per second sort of rate, it is fun because you get sort of this more jumpy, lively, poppy that if you kind of set it to some fun, upbeat music, it just it has a certain amount of joy in it um, as opposed to shooting something that's a little bit more fluid and true to life. Um, so it just, it kind of depends on that look, but again, you get into like dragon frame, you can go ahead and, you know, as you're taking the shots, it's coming into the software and lining it up on a timeline. And if you have a missed shot or something, you can just, you know, delete those off the timeline, but you can then go ahead and preview how all of that looks together, play it forward, play it backward, but then also play it at different frame rates. So then you can kind of make those decisions so that then when I take all those final images, process them and add them into Premiere, then I can kind of say, okay, well, I want this section specifically maybe to be at, you know, that 10 frames per second, but I want to speed things up over here and do this at a different frame rate. So that is kind of, I mean, the frame rate of the whole video is constant, right? So I'm still at 24 frames per second for the overall like file, you know, video. But as far as like how many of those frames are the same exact thing, then that's where we can kind of have some flexibility and play with it depending on the style that we're, we're going for. But most of the stop motions that I've done so far to date are at the 12, 12 frames per second. Again, it's 24 frames per second, but each frame has two, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you shoot those um, in, as JPEGs or as raw and then edit them? How do you? I shoot them as raw and then I edit them just because I, you know, I like that, that flexibility and for the color correction. And especially too, you know, if like a given video will probably have several different like sequences inside of it in terms of, you know, maybe we start with the top down and then we move into the side and then we've got some close ups that, you know, I am working with a continuous lockdown LED, um, you know, and the lighting should not be changing color temperature should not be changing. But in case there is any sort of like change or effect or something that I just have that power for the color correction. But since all the images are effectively very similar within sort of a, a bunch of them, that we can just do that all in batch. But I try to, as much as possible, do anything that avoids Photoshop because that then really... I mean, you can certainly do masking then and things like that. But if you've goobered something up and you need to fix it in Photoshop, that becomes rather laborious. And, you know, frame by frame, that's when you start to lose your marbles. <laughs> yeah, because we're, we're talking about like rather high numbers of uh, of, of frames you'd have to shoot. Like, let's say if, if you did like, even if it's like a, I don't know, I'm guessing even if it's, if it's like a 20 second, like 15 second um, stop motion, that's we're talking about hundreds of images, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's tons, lots and lots of images. I did one to celebrate um, 200,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel with 200 cupcakes. And, you know, they're all dancing and all these things. And I forget exactly the duration of it. But yeah, it's, it's, I can't re remember exactly how many frames, but it's probably near a thousand um, frames that get stitched together. So yeah, you don't, you don't want to have to do too many individual work on individual frames because that, that's, that gets bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, I feel another, another challenge coming on there. There'll be a oh, motion I, challenge at some point. <laughs> I don't know if I have the patience. You need, you need some patience to, and dedication to, to do one of those, don't you? How, how long do they typically take? How, just 
you know, it's, if it's a 30 second clip that you want it, the final product to be, so to speak, the final film, how long does that take you to shoot on average? I mean, a 30 second, 30 seconds is long in yeah. stop motion. Um, I, I mean, that could take, that could take, a you know, half to a full day. Again, depends wow. on sort of the scope of like how many components are coming in. You know, when I've got like, again, the 200,000 cupcake video, well, I have 200 cupcakes in one shot and each of the cupcakes is all moving. Well, that means you have to move 200 cupcakes and then take a shot, move 200 cupcakes, take a shot, move 200, you know, like it, that that's when you're like, why did I decide that I could do this? <laughs> Let's just go back to one cupcake there. <laughs> yeah, one cupcake, right? And so, yeah, as opposed to just a single subject moving, um, you know, so it just all depends because you can also do really fun things like in that video, um, you know, you can have sprinkles, say, for example, like little sugar crystals. And we had, I had them, my husband made a, um, like a stencil for me that in the shape of 200K. And so then we were able to fill that with the sprinkles and then remove that. So then there's sprinkles that say 200,000, you know, on the surface. And then we've got like a little vacuum. And this is the handy part of having a very handy um, husband as far as he's got his workshop and whatever. And so we kind of modified the vacuum to have a very small little like suction on it. So I could just suck up a little bit of the sprinkles at a time, take a shot, suck up a little bit at a time until I had kind of I vacuumed up all of those sprinkles. And then if you play that in reverse, then it's the sprinkles writing themselves on oh, the surface awesome. because they're all being revealed. So that is another fun thing you do is, you know, do something backward because that's an easier way to execute it and then run it, run it backwards. So it looks like that was unveiling or happening. So you can, there's a lot of creative stuff with that in stop motion too. So again, you know, wow. 10 years ago or something, when you were like uh, doing a nine to five in higher education, did you ever think that you were going <laughs> to suck no. up for no. a day job? <laughs> not, not even in the slightest. I would have said, we modified our vacuum to do what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of I when you folks who do stop motion, um, that that is what they do. They have so many funny tools and unique creative things that are a lot of times DIYs and other homemade solutions. Because you know, the to create some of those armatures and to create some of those concepts, like you definitely need different kinds of materials and other things. So I'm, I'm sure the things will come up within the next year as I keep doing more stop motion. Adam, Adam's add some really weird tools to the equation. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must, must be something that could be, um, you know, of interest um, to, to potential clients as well. And it's just, I'm thinking it's so you know, uniquely, um, you know, so quirky uh, in a sense that, you know, that must be, that must be a, a good thing to add to your portfolio if that's, you know, something oh, that yeah. you could do. About half the work I did last year for clients, um, you know, like looking back at numbers and things like that, about half the work I did was video content. And I started to do more of the stop motion because exactly like it is different. It's unique. Not everybody has that expertise or how to execute that um, at a certain level. So that was something that was really nice to be able to have that, okay, these people need skills, but they also need social media content. They also need video for this or that, the other. And, and the, the, 
focus on video only continues to become more and more relevant as everything is happening online. Um, and so how do you stop people in the scroll? How do you grab eyeballs? And so these different creative video um, methods are super duper helpful for that. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is really something I, I say all the time to, um, to you know, fellow photographers is that, um, you know, now that we all have extremely capable video cameras in our hands, just by virtue of actually buying a stills camera, because nowadays mm -hmm. they're so capable, um, you know, it's it, there's really no reason not to get into video. And I know a lot of stills photographers, you know, traditionally have this um, this this kind of mental barrier or this mental block when it comes to video. Um, I'm not. I'm not exactly 100 sure why. Maybe maybe people might think it's a steep learning curve, and it just you know I've just learned how to use Photoshop, and now I've got to learn how to use Premiere or Final Cut Pro or something like yeah. that. But um, and of course, there's an there's an additional dimension, which is what I like about it, because it's just there's the story element to it, you know, and the the yeah. move the movement over time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it's definitely something um, I, I personally recommend to. Uh, to people generally is to really, you know, get into video and, um, and get used to, to working with, with video. Incidentally, when mm -hmm. I was a kid, um, this is a long time before, before, uh, before Nick was around. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh -huh. Actually, I'm older than Nick. So maybe, yeah, sometime before Nick was around. I used to, when I was a kid, um, my, my first camera was actually a, a video camera. And, uh, I used to, I used to edit stuff, um, between the camera and a VCR. So I used to press play on the, on the camera. And then press, totally. you know, record on the VCR. And then you, oh, have these, yeah. you have these things called title generators, which were the things you, you plug in the middle and you could create a title. Whoa. Back in the day before computers. I it's like kids these days, you know, like they don't know how easy this is now. Cause I, you know, yeah, like 20 years ago, I was, I really wanted to be on the show Survivor. Um, I never got on the show Survivor, but I applied for like so many seasons, but you had to send in a, like a VCR videotape of yourself and like your audition. And we made these, but I remember like how hard that was like to get a camcorder and then to get that footage. And that like all that stuff was so hard. Now I'm like, I mean, literally, you all there are free tools. You can go get, you know, DaVinci Resolve for free and create high quality cinematic videos. It's like this is a no brainer, man. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, you can you can so easily do things like you know blue screen or green screen, um, you know, with Final Cut. Even you know, in a living room. Back in yep. the day, I remember like building like I used to mod a little Star Wars models. And like yeah. put like stuff like Allen keys on them, spray paint them, and change them around and stuff. And I used to create these like these weird looking spaceships, and like you know, it's to light up a globe, um, and, and you know, and hang them up on like wires, and then create these like space scenes. Because I've seen some behind the scenes thing um, of Star Wars where they move the camera instead of the model, and so you make it look like it's flying and all that kind of stuff. So I used oh to my have, god! I used to do all of that on eight millimeter video. I think. <laughs> that's back oh, in the fantastic. Day. But. Um, but yeah, I mean that's you know that's that's really one of the one of the main reasons why, you know, first of all, I think Nick and me have the something we have in common is that we always look at the behind the scenes thing as soon as, soon as you know when you like you look at a DVD or you, you download a movie or something and there's a behind the scenes um, element to it like that's it we're just you know we're just watching that screw the movie just want to see how they made it. Well, when was the last time you put a DVD on? Uh, actually, to be, yeah, I mean, just as I said it, I realized I don't even have a DVD player, but, uh, <laughs> funnily enough, you know, my wife's just ordered a yogurt DVD. She told me yesterday, I'm thinking, 
Oh, that's good. Okay, yeah, Yogar, I, I, I can get on board with that. How are we going to play it? <laughs> you say, can you play a DVD anymore? <laughs> no, it's, I honestly can't. I think my old um, my old MacBook Pro might still have a DVD drive building or something. I have to really think <laughs> about that. <laughs> so that is it. We have come to the end of episode 47 of the Camera Shake podcast with Johnny Simon. Joni, thank you so much for being our special guest on the show this week. It was quite an education, I have to say. Um, I also feel quite hungry now that we've been talking about food photography. <laughs> Definitely an occupational hazard. If right. you get into food photography, if you're making people hungry, though, you know you're doing your job right. That's so. right. You should Actually, you should bring out another book, uh, something like How to Keep Fit When You're Into Food Photography. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's the thing. Anyway, so we have truly come to the end. Uh, it was uh, it was absolutely uh, amazing to have you on the show. Um, for those listeners who are listening to the audio version of this, of course, be reminded you can head over to YouTube and uh, check out um, our beautiful faces in full Technicolor. Um, also, wherever you are in the world, if you are listening to this or if you're watching this on YouTube, of course, uh, please let us know where you are. You can get in touch via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, or send us an old-fashioned uh, email if you want. It's uh, camerashakepodcast at gmail.com. Um, it's it's always fantastic to see where you are when you're listening to us um, and let us know what you're up to. Uh, with that being said, that's it for us today. I will see you again next week. Bye.